As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. With us around the table, you've got a sneak peek of this. Andrew Balls, Global Fixed Income CIO at PIMCO. Andrew, good morning. Good to be here. Thanks for having Ten-year, fantastic to be with you. 4.34 on a 10-year yield this morning. To build on what Lisa said, is this a moment in time? Bye, bye, bye. Lock it in before it goes away. Or can we live with this? So, so I think it looks pretty um, attractive. We're in the middle of our forum discussions, which we had in London as well, actually. So uh, uh, we're still talking about this with the, um, the investment we'll committee. Head start. But it looks, it looks pretty attractive here. If you have a high quality bond fund, um, five, six percent yield uh, in US dollars uh, with more credit, kind of seven percent, maybe seven and a half percent yield. This looks very attractive. Equities have done very well this this year. Looking forward, um, um, you know, six and a half, five and a half percent type yield for a bond fund looks very good to us. There are two points here. One is, does this look attractive now? And the second is, where is the next rate? Uh, where where does the move come from? Is it higher or is it lower? There are two different discussions, right, and how sticky this is going to be. How big is the argument right now in some of these meetings at PIMCO? Well, I think you were talking about real yields and I was uh, nodding. When you look at real yields and look at long-term uh, history, it's starting to look um, attractive. Here we had this period after 2008, quantitative easing and all of that and depressed real yields. But you're now seeing real, real yields um, um, at attractive um, levels and nominal yields I was, I was quoting before look, um, look um, pretty good. Um, to us, you have, you know, in the outlook, you have inflation still stubbornly high at the core level, improving much faster in the U.S. compared with um, Europe. But I think the jury is um, is still out there. But then don't forget the recession risk. Um, uh, we have had very significant global tightening um, across across the world, and um, um, yes, the data has been better expected than expected, particularly in the U.S. this year. But as we all know, these um, central bank tightening takes time to feed into the, the real economy. So looking forward, um, uh, the jury's still out on inflation, but that recession risk yeah. remains um, significant. Critical question for PIMCO, and it's not only the heritage of PIMCO from Bill and Mohammed forward to the great call you people made a number of years ago. You've got the advantage of the former vice chairman, Richard Claret, I believe, darkens the door. <laughs> I can just see balls and clarity in a debate over where we're going to reset on our, our start and almost on a global our start. 
Do you sense within all the great work you do, Andrew, that we're going to reset at a new rate regime, something that we've never experienced before? So I think it's a interesting debate. Rich and I tend to um, agree and um, on this point that as you look forward beyond this inflation um, episode, the cyclical uh, rise in policy rates we've, we've seen, there's good reasons to think that um, uh, our star neutral rates are at the low levels um, that we've seen for the last several years. We'll see this in the Fed's um, um, projections this week, but the, the, the chances are the Fed will also see 2.5% right. as their, their long dot. So compare the 4.5%, uh, 4.3%, 4.4% for the 10-year Treasury, or look at the forward rates and compare it with that, um, that neutral anchor. We believe that anchor um, um, remains the, the correct way to do right. the analysis. And then the long-term outlook versus that then looks very attractive, I'd say. Does Lagarde have an R-star? Does Ueda have an R-star? Dare I say, does Bailey have an R-star? They, they all have their, um, they all have the variations on this. I think, you know, the Fed uh, maybe is a bit happier to talk about it sometimes. But um, uh, again, looking at, um, looking at bund yields now, um, um, uh, even in Japan, you are getting to levels in terms of, you know, the 10-year yield where it's starting to look more interesting control for volatility, return per unit of volatility. I agree with that. This and really it becomes a little point. bit, um, once we get beyond the, the, the YCC, once we yep. get beyond the yield curve control. So if you think that you have that anchor, and we do, then look at your five-year, five-year forward rates to isolate um, the, the, the long-term expectations beyond this central bank cycle. Uh, and you know that's the environment when it's, it's much easier to come in and be positive like I am today compared with the lows of the, the COVID period. We don't spend nearly enough time talking about this how different this regime is to the regime of the last decade before the pandemic. How different is it for you and the team? What have you had to change just in terms of your approach away from zero rates and QE forever towards potentially the Bank of Japan hike in interest rates, the ECB going to levels I never thought they'd get to. I thought maybe they'd go back to zero, but here we are at 4%. How different is this for you and the team? Well, I think it's, it's, it's very different. Um, and I think um, uh, as a bond manager, you, you like to see these, these high yields at the front end of the curve, it becomes really interesting, um, the relative value at the, um, the front end of the, the curve, you know, zero yields, uh, remember those, um, um, something that hopefully we've um, consigned to, to history. I think one important thing looking forward different to the last 10 years is uncertainty around inflation. So we see inflation coming down towards central bank targets, a little bit above, but coming down over the course of next year. Uh, but I think clearly there's much more uncertainty in the inflation picture for the last for the next few years compared with the um, the last decade and so um, back to the the discussion before you should be getting term premium you should be getting paid um, uh, appropriate term premium for holding the 10-year part of the the curve but again comparing our uh, forward rates with um, our expectations for our start it looks like you're getting fair compensation after a period when with quantitative easing and all uh, these the risk premiums were really compressed what about in credit, though, I mean, given the fact that you're looking at greater vulnerability to an oil price shock or a unionization shock or a technological shock, some of these things that become that much more important when your cushion is that much smaller. 
So I think, I mean, I think the baseline for credit looks fine. I think credit should do well in an environment where you avoid the, the tails, not just about recession, but, you know, real recession, not just um, a technical recession. And on the upside case, if inflation is, is coming back into, into line with that fairly benign middle path, then, then credit should be fine. From our perspective, though, we want to guard against the, the tails. And if we do get um, deeper than expected economic downturn, um, you know, that's going to be painful in credit. So I think up in quality, IG looks um, uh, attractive versus high yield. Uh, avoid cuspier credits, avoid any kind of um, um, exposure to real default risk in, in what remains a really uncertain environment. It's not often you have these sorts of, of tightening cycles globally to such an extent. And then the final thing, there's lots of other stuff we can do in the world. US agency mortgages, very, very high quality instrument, um, uh, very attractive in terms of the, the valuation. So again, if you can get to the kind of 5-6% type um, yields on, on core bonds, that looks, that looks pretty good to us in, uh, in terms of the next few years. Andrew, always a privilege. Thank you, sir. Andrew Balls there of PIMCO. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What we're going to do right now, this is really important. We're trying to piece together with the trip to London, the credit conference we'll be doing on Thursday. We're really trying to piece together 2024. They're the political conventions in America and that. But front and center for Bramo, John and myself, is we need tickets to the Paris Olympics. The only reason he's with us now with Axe Investments Paris, Gilles Molec is with us here. Give us an update right now. And Mr. Macron, AXA, and the Paris boom you're going to see. Can Paris get any more boomier than it is now off the Olympics next summer? Right, it's looking good. Uh, I guess uh, tourism is, is helping a lot. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the city is having a, a good run. Gas is going to continue until the, the Olympics. Uh, now the country around Paris, it can be a bit more complicated. We've had a good first half of the year. Things are starting to look a bit more complicated. Uh, so there's a lot of positivity at the moment in France because if you compare yourself to Germany, things are so much better. Right. Even the German stellar now, so it's quite unusual. But actually, if you look at the latest uh, business confidence survey, it's not as bad as in Germany, but it's also heading south. This is really important because I think to our listeners and viewers, 
particularly in America, when we say we went to France, we went to three arrondissements wrapped around Notre Dame and the wonderful repair of that cathedral. We don't have a real picture here of the greater European economy. We just see the boom of European tourism. Separate the European tourism from your caution on the rest of the European economy. Yeah, I mean, the, the, definitely the weakness in the euro is, is helping from that point of view. So tourism is actually a function of, of, that, of that weakness. Uh, the rebound in, in the US, the, the, I think the appetite for traveling to Europe at the moment. But you know, even in the most tourism-sensitive countries in the eurozone, it's what, you know, 15 to 20% of GDP at most. And the rest is you know, the usual stuff that is dependent on either you know, world demand in the generic sense of the meaning or on you know, uh, uh, consumer spending. And uh, consumer spending in France, for instance, has been contracting for two quarters in a row. Uh, so you know, we have to be, yes, a bit broader in our assessment situation. It takes us to the ECB. So let's be slightly provocative in this question. Trichet 2008, Trichet 2011. Should we add Lagarde September 2023 to those? Well, they're trying hard not to fall in that trap because actually if you compare this with Evo 08 and, and with 2011, there was not a great sense of caution at the time when they actually hiked. There was a sort of self-righteousness that we are definitely delivering what we need to and we're probably going to continue. Whereas this time it feels very much like it's the last hike that we probably need maybe for tactical reasons internally to get the hawks on, on, on board also because I think it's true there is a resilience of inflation which is more tangible in Europe than it is in, in the US. But the entire body language from, from Christine Lagarde last week was about, you know, yes, they're now selling the, the, the long for, uh, the high for long, sorry. Uh, but in terms of, of further hikes, we're probably done. And I think, yes, what happened in 08, what happened in 2011 must be on their minds. Uh, and even the hawks, are getting a bit less vocal, I would say. I've noticed the same thing. It begs the question about what we can learn from the European experience on the other side of the Atlantic. Do you think there are any lessons? You see Germany essentially go into recession and inflation's still a problem. Growth in Europe essentially stagnate and inflation is still a problem. Is softer growth the cure for what we're experiencing at the moment? Well, you know, that, that I know that lots of economists, including myself, have been wrong on that for the last year, but uh, history would tell you that it's very, very, very hard to get you know, a disinflation without proper pain in, in the real economy, especially when inflation is no longer about you know, exogenous forces, it's about your domestic forces. Uh, so as long as you know, proved otherwise, I would say that what's happening in the Europe is probably a lesson for what might happen in the US, even if, yes, the US resilience is, is amazing at the moment, I guess a big difference between between the two is that um, there's, I think, in Germany a more structural issue, which is coming back to bind them at the moment, which is to some extent, how to say, disconnected from monetary policy. They would be probably in a softer patch anyway, and that is dragging the years on average down. Uh, but you, know, you want to kill inflation, especially when it started to get entrenched in you know, wage uh, negotiations. You probably need to engineer some sort of softening of demand. Uh, there, there's not a lot in the textbook that would tell you otherwise. Is Europe completely different than the U.S. when it comes to how well it can withstand the oil shock or just perhaps oils, the oil prices going back to something more normal on an inflation-adjusted basis? 
our big problem for the last two years has been gas rather than rather than than oil. But uh, on yeah, on average, we tend to be more sensitive to uh, to to oil shocks than than the U.S. for you know, complicated reasons due to the fact that uh, uh, even if we are less oil intensive than than the U.S., the actual price of a gallon of of, of gas in, in in Europe is is much higher than in the U.S. and people are probably more sensitive to to that particular uh, uh, item. But were, if it was just about oil prices, I don't think we would be really concerned. Uh, I think you know, most observers at the moment are more focused on what's going on with food prices. Uh, hopefully, it will continue to slow down. At least this is what all sale markets would tell you for most of that. And gas. And uh, we went through last winter much more positively than what was expected. We need to do it again this winter, and to some extent, it's beyond our control. Which feeds into the whole discussion of wage spirals, especially in light of some of the labor movement that we've seen in the U.S., but also around the world, maybe taking a page from Europe, if anything. Yeah. How much do you think that that's more noise than signal, or vice versa, in terms of wages staying sticky and labor power continuing to be stronger than it has been? No, I think I think there's there's something you know, uh, profound happening there, which is that uh, there has been a, uh, say a change in the balance of power between employees and employers. I mean, it's very trivial to say that, but in Europe, where we have uh, in most countries a collective wage bargaining system. What we tend to have is more inertia in the way you know, wage rea wages react. I mean, in the U.S., you could make the case that wage uh, accelerate when people actually can leverage you know, the job opportunities and go back to their employer and ask for a pay raise. It's not really the way it works in Europe. I mean, some of it obviously happens, but most of the pay increases here happen as a result of collective bargaining. And it always takes a while for, for instance, the unions to realize that maybe the economy has become softer, mm -hmm. job opportunities are falling, maybe it would be time to move back towards wage moderation. Uh, but you need, you need actually a proper proof that the labor market is softening. And even in Europe, and that's actually one of the big positives of our current situation is, even in countries which have been used to mass unemployment for decades, the current situation of the labor market is more than okay. I mean, take France, maybe my country. Right. You know, unemployment rate at 7%. If you had told me that you know, France would be able to deliver that uh, right. 10 years ago, I wouldn't have believed you. I got eight ways to go here, but just because of time. Then, can you say Europe is vaulted beyond Eurosclerosis? I mean, Eurosclerosis is, uh, I think, in, in many cases, what we have is sort of a magnified version of what happens in the U.S. in terms of demographic changes, for instance. We are a sort of more acute version of what is going to happen in the U.S. Uh, anyway. But one point on which I think Europe at the moment is doing better than the U.S., uh, it's on participation. You know, the big positive right now in Europe is that our participation rate is rising and has been rising through the pandemic. It's today much higher than it was before COVID. It's exactly the opposite of what's been happening in the U.S., even if there has been a catch-up uh, recently. We've put more young people, more older people uh, back to work. Uh, and you know, basically, I think we are benefiting from you know, structural reforms which have been pushed through in Europe for the last 20, 30 years. Not spectacular ones, but gradually, I think we have a much better functioning labor market than what we had 20, 30 years ago. And you know, it's, it's definitely positive. Jill. That is a price spot. Thanks for being with us. Jill Mowak of AXA Investment Managers. Jeff Yu joins us now, senior market strategist at BMY Mellon. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you. 
Yields at 5% of the front end, pushing cycle highs on a 10-year. Dare I say it, is this the new normal? Are we getting comfortable with this? Well, let's go back to Tom's point about real yields, okay? You can deflate via CPI, headline CPI. What if we deflate nominal yields by wage gains or potential wage gains? So then if you take the 20% or between 20 and 40% real wages, uh, sorry, uh, nominal wage gains, if realised, then real yields actually are very, very negative still, and then central bankers have to catch up. So there's a risk here, going back to your point, about a wage price spiral that isn't going away anytime soon. What is the x-axis on real yields? So here we are at 2%. I've done some fancy math. Mm -hmm. I get to 2.20. Maybe I'm still here at 2%. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, there's a length of this new real mm -hmm. yield. Where's the tension point out in the next year? So basically, you have to identify uh, where potential GDP growth is, medium to longer term growth in the US. If that's a um, um, headline number, nominal number, you know, three to four percent. Then find your inflation target. Then, if it's still two percent, right? Then real yields you still need to get yeah, to two to three. Right. To go nerdy yeah. on a Monday, yeah. R minus G. Are we at a risk here where the interest rate becomes less? than the small g as Blanchard and Stiglitz, among others, worry about? I'm glad you brought up Blanchard because I want to bring up another paper between him and Chair Bernanke. Yes, when, yeah. when does this, this become a problem? This is such a nerd fest over on the port side of the desk. <laughs> Favourite part of the morning. Uh, in, in terms of wages versus price spiral and with the oil prices going where they are right now, you get a price spiral according to that paper when labour markets are tight. Yeah. So here are the unions making uh, the gamble or the determination in manufacturing, labor markets are still very tight right now in the U.S. Which raises a question, is this signal or noise? Because this is, yes, it is now tight. Although mm -hmm. on, the, uh, on the margins, yeah. you're seeing signs that you are getting some mm -hmm. sort of labor market softening. Right. Is this the last gasp, as John was asking, mm -hmm. of labor market power? Or is this something else that does have a stickier nature? I'd say on a broader basis, this does feel like a last gasp if I, do, if I look at things globally. But on the other hand, you know, I'm an FX guy at the end of the day. Relatives, it's all about the relative differentials. I think U.S. labor market's still tighter compared to what we have in Europe right now. So on that note alone, probably Labour has more bargaining power in the US compared to in Europe. Does that mean dollar weakness? Um, I would say, you know, a short term, you know, dollar strength, you know, that's still going to be uh, in play because um, that puts the Fed on a more vigilant um, footing, you know, to borrow an ECB phrase. Um, but, you know, net net, uh, I think you know, pretty much uh, that is in the price right now. Uh, so let's see where we're going to be. Very cliche of you, Jeff. Let's talk about Powell on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. On Wednesday, we get a set of projections. Yep. Most people assume that for 2023, when we look at revised growth figures, they're going up. Yep. When we look at revised inflation figures, they're going down. What does 2024 look like? for you and the team? Uh, so 2024, it's less about are they going to hike further. Um, it's more about you know, how long do US rates and stay where they are. And uh, that uh, is you know, what the BOJ will be looking at. And what, uh, so you didn't mention, uh, Central Bank of Brazil, Central Bank of Turkey, and the Central Bank of South Africa, the Swiss, they're, the, they're all deciding. <laughs> and when they look at their nominal effective exchange rates, they'll all be looking at the Fed. How long can the Fed's projection keep the dollar strong? And then they'll have to calibrate their own forecasts. Is that dollar problem? bigger in Europe right now for you than EM? Um, I think that dollar problem is bigger in Europe because EM uh, across the board, if you look at uh, Brazil, for example, much higher real rates. Um, so they've got the buffer. Europe does not. Greg Avis surprised us with a low five-year growth view. Suddenly, oil 94. 
for Jeff Yu, where is the price of Brent that's a tip point that really accentuates that global slowdown? Um, let's look at the individual markets. For example, China's at a slowdown already, no matter what China, unless you're looking at a real reacceleration in China, which is not my base case, to 5 or 6%, uh, then you get into a demand issue on yeah. top of a supply issue. That becomes a problem um, globally, and then that could be a tipping point. But right now, if it's just the U.S. alone, and given U.S. energy independence, I think it's much more manageable. I'm glad you mentioned China. The Wall Street Journal had this big expose. China might be weaker than you think, and Tafak has ta uh, talked about yeah. focusing on the housing market. Yeah. Other people have said, including Leland Miller of the China Beige Book, that from a U.S. perspective, this is what people want to see, but it's not actually what's happening on the ground, that there's actually a great deal of strength. Having been in China a couple of times yeah. recently, what's your view? Um, so domestically, I thought consumption was um, firm. So I was there about three uh, weeks ago. You know, people were spending, you know, some of the key tourist sites, you know, like in Xi'an, the Terracotta Warriors, you know, it was basically, you know, several rows behind before you could actually you know, see the soldiers um, there. But then on the way out, look at Beijing Airport, you know, just you know, barely any international flights you know, coming out. So that higher ticket consumption items, I think you know, that's a bit more of a problem at this point. Going back to the real estate market, you know, there's close linkages you know, to the financial system in China. Stabilizing the real estate market means stabilizing the financial system, especially the, the trust and framework, um, shadow banking, you know, for example. So you know, that's where um, I think that they are doing the right thing. But ultimately, how much more downside can you price in relative pricing? I think it's very limited. Do you partition mm -hmm. China into domestic balance sheet mm -hmm. challenges, even out to Chengdu, mm -hmm. or do you drag that into the more international analysis of renminbi and the rest? Are you, do you partition or not? Um, so I think at this point, um, China's pretty much self-financed. We look at our own flow data. International financing for China's growth is very, very limited right now. So it's about domestic financial stability. I agree. And then the transmission is, yeah. if things you know, go all right, can that drag down international growth further? We've got to squeeze this in, Jeff. We're in Europe. Mm -hmm. There is an EV battle taking yes. place. Mm -hmm. And to a greater extent, I think the transition to EVs is at the epicenter, the heart of this conversation with UAW and the Detroit 3 mm -hmm. at the moment. Are we heading towards just massive tariffs? for auto imports in places like Europe? If you asked me two weeks ago, I would have said no, but I think something changed at the Munich Auto Show. What do you think changed? I think um, for the first time in three or four years, Chinese came back and European manufacturers looked at how far they were behind, not just in terms of cars, battery technology, and realized uh, this is much more pressing than we thought, and you saw the reaction. German manufacturers are scared of what's coming out of China. Absolutely. And China saw this in advance. That's why they want to build in Hungary near battery factories and they want to build um, assembly plants um, in France as well. But even then, with that kind of cooperative approach, you're seeing the backlash already. And then you're seeing the backlash to the backlash um, from Beijing. So this is going to get interesting. Now, this is only one industry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But do you think there's broader things at play here that ultimately influence things like flows that contribute to calls in foreign exchange? Um, I think medium to longer term, let's look at the chip industry as well. Um, that's um, going to you know, feature heavily in terms of flows into Asia, uh, into Europe. Um, but uh, the importance to employment, especially in Germany, and also that e Eastern Europe that feeds into the German supply chain, Ireland. I think this is, and politically speaking, no, this is absolutely going to be central to Europe. Jeff, this was fantastic. Great to kick off the week with you here in London. Jeff, you there. My pleasure. FBNY Mellon. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. 
and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Right now we're going to survive American politics. Gregory Vellier briefs us this morning, chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF. Greg, in the Washington Post, they talk about five ideological factions of the Republican Party. I didn't know that. Do you actually buy the idea, given labor unrest in America, given a possible government shutdown, that Mr. McCarthy's dealing with five ideological factions? Oh, at least. Yeah, it's 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 quite a spectacle right now. He's on really thin ice, Tom. I don't think he can get a deal before the October 1 deadline. So we do have a shutdown. I call it shutdown light because it's not going to be the end of the world. We're not going to kill Social Security and Medicare benefits. But if you want to go to a national park, you're out of luck. And I think the shutdown is going to last for quite a while. Is there a shutdown in Detroit? What I find stark is the imagery and the great coverage by Bloomberg on this. You know, I see them picketing and there's like seven people out front. It looks like a lineup at Denny's waiting to get in. I mean, is this like a real strike of labor like you and I remember? Or is it sort of kind of like pretend? Yeah, it's not like what we remember that everybody went out and, and you didn't selectively target uh, factories. Uh, but I think there have been some sign of progress. I think Ford has been the most conciliatory. And I think that the elephant in the room, obviously, is Joe Biden. I think Biden knows that Michigan has 16 electoral votes. And I think Biden will, will be influential in the final agreement. What will that entail? Do we have a sense of what it will take to get it done and what that means for the viability of auto manufacturers that have traditionally added to the GDP and really fostered a lot of strength in the Midwest? Yeah, I think it will have to be uh, close to 30 percent uh, in wages, 40 percent out of the question. But I think the number will creep up. They may go back to more like defined pensions. Uh, they may have less than a 40 hour work week. It will be generous and it will add to the perception that wages are sticky for the Federal Reserve. I think sticky wages are, are going to be around for quite a while. Does this pressure, uh, just sort of uniting the two ideas, does this pressure uh, lawmakers to try to get a budget deal done just to avoid the extra hit on that front, especially at a time where there might be some agreement on things like border control between the Republicans and Democrats? I tell you, Lisa, these people are on a different planet from you and me. Uh, they are fighting these parochial fights knowing they're going to lose. I mean, it's quite clear that this compromise over the weekend would never make it through the Senate. I'm not even sure it would make it through the House. So we're going to go through this exercise. And sadly, I think this drags on right into the holiday season, maybe after the holiday season, before we get a deal. 
Yeah, Greg, i got to turn to Scriff. Once again, over the weekend, lots of discussion about the president's age. I think all of our listeners and viewers are sort of exhausted by the debate. But I want to know the Valier timeline hmm. to where I get an LBJ announcement like March of 1968. You and I were sitting on the couch watching the yep. Bruins lose when that happened. What, how do right. we get Joe Biden out to where LBJ was in March of 68? I don't think he realizes there's a problem. More and more Democrats I talk to, almost all of them, as a matter of fact, say they would like to see Biden step down. Two problems. Number one, he is delusional and he doesn't think there is a problem. Number two, there is no logical successor. That's the problem for the party. Do the polls scream, Greg, that there's a problem? Absolutely. I mean, about 70 percent of Democrats say they would prefer a different nominee. I mean, that I've never seen a gap like that. So you, you could have more pressure. You know, the other thing, guys, I should mention is that filing deadlines are fast approaching by uh, late October, early November. It's too late to file. So any talk about some last minute rescue for the party, I think, is unwarranted. Greg, before you run, before you go, have you heard about that missing F-35? Have you read the story on that? The missing what? F-35 fighter jet gone missing. Yeah, in the Carolinas. Yeah, and yeah. No, Greg, what no on earth is going on? How does the military lose an F-35? I know, it's, it's quite a story. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to get bigger. Greg Valier of AGF, thank you, sir. Let us move on. Amrita Sen joins us to save us here from the ballpark, co-founder, head of research at Energy Aspects, and critically joins us this morning from Canada, which is an oil producer. Amrita, within your racket, within your industry, are they looking at this as a surge that can ebb, or is there a feeling, you know, within the macro petroleum business that this is a new pricing to stay? Well, it's it's still early. It's not even 5 a.m. here, so I don't know how they're feeling. But if I had to guess, Tom, I would say they are all going to be very happy. I mean, of course, there's World Petroleum Congress over here. All ministers from all around the world are gathering, uh, including Prince mm -hmm. Abdulaziz himself. Um, there's there's lots and lots of um, kind of you know talks with both consumers and producer governments really over the next couple of days over here. Um, and I think the reality is that demand has surprised to the upside, regardless of all the recessionary fears that we've seen. Right. And I think that's why what is interesting for me is, yes, crude is getting all the headlines now. We're talking about it. But if you look at products and crack spreads, that have already been high for the last few months. Gasoline, diesel, they've been trading at $120 plus per barrel. Crude was 80. Now crude's catching up, but those prices haven't necessarily gone up further. So this is more of a redistribution between refiners and producers right. than really end users feeling the impact. So I know why the media is focusing on the crude, but I don't think the end user is necessarily seeing that big an impact versus a few months ago. Right. What is the representation or tone of China is the marginal demand elephant in the room at the Congress? Is, is China there in a big way? 
think there is going to be presence for sure. Um, and I think, again, the dichotomy between Chinese macro and Chinese oil demand is definitely going to come up, something we've been highlighting for some time now, because in the West and Western analysts keep looking at the Chinese macro data and saying, well, oil demand hasn't been performing yet. Oil demand uh, has actually been hitting record highs because it's become more consumer oriented. Plus, China's got some strategic petroleum reserve filling going on as well. Um, in some ways, the U.S. has been drawing it down last year and China now is actually refilling it. Um, having locked in some favorable prices earlier in the year. What's the pressure on Prince Abdulaziz today, who's going to be speaking, I believe, around 10 a.m. Eastern time at the uh, Calgary conference to really increase production, especially if this is being driven in part by demand, not just their supply cuts? Well, I think he's been very clear that, look, there still is a lot of uncertainty, be it um, from the Fed itself or even China, all the kind of noise that's coming around. And he has to be a thousand percent confident, I would say, not even hundred percent, that there are uh, not going to be any of these, you know, surprises uh, with the Fed, for instance. And it's a bit of a chicken and egg, right? If oil prices go up, what does the Fed do, as you guys have been talking about as well? But I think they are going to be cautious. They want to ensure that balances or at least inventories do not build uh, because of those macro concerns. And look, Saudi Arabia has extended uh, the cuts till year end. So has Russia. It kind of gives for them the main thing they want to provide is stability. And I think that's what he's trying to do. And I think that's what he's going to focus on today. It's a really interesting confluence of events at the United Nations. They're holding a conference right now where a lot, a lot of the focus is going to be on sustainable energy and moving away from fossil fuels. You have electric vehicles taking over. That is underpinning some of the discussions with the UAW. How much is that underpinning Saudi Arabia's decision to cut production, to get more profits now before some of these groups phase out fossil fuels, before they become less of a focus later on? Well, you could argue that goes both ways, Lisa, right? I've also heard the argument that that's why other countries want to flood the market and make sure they don't have stranded assets um, afterwards. I don't think OPEC plus policy works like that. Uh, we've written about this as well, that ultimately Saudi Arabia and most OPEC countries are revenue optimizers, right? What they are trying to do for themselves is saying, OK, if this is the price and we cut production or raise production, what is our total revenue going to be? That is what they are focusing on right now. Of course, they are concerned concerned about long-term energy transition, but I wouldn't even use the word concerned. I think they embrace it. They are doing a lot around it. Uh, and right. they very much are aware that oil has to fade over time. They just disagree with the timelines like the IEA has put out. What's the Amaretto-Sen timeline of an oil vector, I guess, in June or July of 70-something up to 94.51 right now? Is that just a continued vector up? Do you see 95, 96, 97, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, if you remember, Tom, our price forecast for Q4 uh, was an average of $92 for Brent. So I think we've... We've kind of hit it now, so the question is, but look, an average of 92 does allow oil prices to go to 100. Uh, we're, gonna, we're putting out a piece later today, which is uh, calling for $100 by Halloween uh, for Brent. Um, and go. again, you know, this is, this is just a trajectory. And at this point, look, of course, it's a short-term thing, right? I'm not saying it's going to average above 100, but could it go to $100 uh, for a bit? Absolutely, yes. The triple digit by Halloween, is, Amrita, is that just a marketing mechanism? Just, you know, triple digits, it's, it's, Halloween, it just, or is something about the next no, month? No, it just... 
it just rhymes right 100 by halloween that's why no i'm joking uh but it's nice. just, <laughs> no i think look uh, fundamentals are very very strong right now but also positioning and that's one thing we shouldn't miss a lot of hedge funds are very underpositioned in crude because of the macro concerns now we are seeing quite a bit of passive money come back as well <clears throat> so i think the combination of that could actually lead to a temporary kind of upswing in crude and that's why i'm not saying we are still we're not expecting it to average above 100 but it could go above 100 in the near, in the next couple of weeks only five dollars away right now i'm ready to thank you i'm ready to send of energy aspects subscribe to the bloomberg surveillance podcast on apple spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m eastern on bloomberg.com the iheart radio app tune in and the bloomberg business app you can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.